Hello again, listeners, and welcome back for another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. I've done almost 30 episodes of the Just Checking In pod up to now, and finally, I'll be able to be joined by a fellow Huddersfield Town fan onto the pod. Now, I should say, he's not just an avid Town fan like me, which we'll all be glad to hear, won't be the main focus of this pod, but he's someone who's a bit of a minor celebrity in his area and the wider country, although he'll hate me calling me that, calling him that. So I'm delighted to be welcoming Matthew Burton onto the Just Checking In pod. Matthew came into a bit of fame through a little show called Educating Yorkshire, which was broadcast on Channel 4 in September 2013. The show focused on the day-to-day life of Thornhill Community Academy School in Dewsbury, West Yorkshire, where he was an English teacher. Stories focused on children and staff alike, from Year 9 struggling to manage school life to stressed-out Year 11s concentrating on their GCSE exams, teenage relationships, fights, bullying, and one truly inspirational young lad called Musharraf, which we'll discuss later on in the pod. Matt is still at Thornhill to this day. He's had a small promotion since the show ended, as he is now head teacher of the school, where he's been in the role since September 2018. Matt, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you so much for giving up your time to come on. Firstly, how are you, pal, and how are you coping with the lockdown? Uh, thanks, Fred. Um, I'm all right, yeah. I'm, I'm not too bad at all. I'm just... I just find it very surreal. Every day it becomes more surreal. But I think I seem to sort of feel a bit more serene and calm um, being at home. But then every, you know, every, every day, because, you know, we're, I'm very lucky that we've got garden and the weather's all right and all that sort of stuff. But then actually, you know, you get to two o'clock every day and you get the sort of the numbers of people who've died in, which is horrendous. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking. Mm. It's difficult. So there's, there's those two sort of sides to it that um, we're doing what we need to do. Of course we are. And that's really important that we do that. Um, and when you're in your own little bubble, I suppose you, you know, you, it's easy to be pretty calm about things if everybody's okay. That you sort of, you know, within your your little sphere of influence, I suppose. Um, but actually, the wider, you know, the wider impact on on society is is absolutely horrendous, isn't it? It's um, you know the right thing. We need to stay at home, save lives, and do what we've been told. Completely agree, and I think that's especially around the teaching aspect of your job, Matt. It's something we'll, we'll, we'll discuss later on in the pod, but we've got a lot to get through, so shall we just get started? Yeah, let's do it. The elephant in the room that I have to get out of the way first, Matt, and it's one which we won't go in for too long, hopefully, as I'm sure you've done hundreds of interviews about it, which is Educating Yorkshire, the show. Now, just briefly, just tell me a bit about the show from your experience, how it came about, why was Thornhill maybe approached to participate, and what was it like for you? I mean, it was it was life changing. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It came at a time in my life when um, my wife and I we'd just gone through a miscarriage, and the first day of filming actually was the day after it had happened, I think. Um, and so the whole thing, really, you know, because it ended in in ultimately with like a Christmas special in December, which was sort of five, six, seven days, something like that, after my daughter had been born, Olivia, who was now six. So it was a real moment the whole thing was a real moment for me and whilst it was a, a year um it, it was just a, a a sort of surreal i mean say surreal and you've got 
you know weeks and months like these that we're going through at the moment but it was it, it was life-changing um the way that it went came about was obviously i wasn't a head teacher at the time but i think what happened was two four production com uh, productions the, the company who made the program um sort of blanket approach to fair few schools and our head teacher at the time johnny who was who was brilliant um got back in touch with them and said yeah we'd be interested in a exploratory conversation and then they came in and obviously they liked what they saw and i wasn't party to these conversations at all um and then it just went from there really and they, they, they sort of met people over months and months and months and they gained people's trust did the the production team and i've got you know friends for life to this day that you know really really wonderful people and did an amazing job and really grafted and put the work in and put the hours in and really cared about the community and, and the portrayal of the, the school so the way it came about was um was in terms of my own involvement in it really the way that happened was that um they just ran well not obviously they got to know me in the, the period before that the, the filming had started but when it came to actually filming i was just asked on the first morning if i'd put a microphone on some of the you know one of the um lapel mics and just wear it with a battery pack in my pocket um and that was it and then that happened every day and then obviously you know things like the mushroom moment came about and happened and um the rest is history, as they say. So it was just, a, you know, I, I see it very much as a... Um, I've, I've learned so much off the back of it. And, you know, you learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about, obviously, the media and the experience of that side of things. Um, but it's been overwhelmingly positive. And I think what people can see is that it was a group of people who were trying their very best to work with, with a wonderful group of students. And that's exactly what we are still at Thornhill. You know, things are different, of course they are. Schools move on and change and uh, priorities change and... The way that things are done change but ultimately it's the same thing and our rules now are work hard and be nice and that's ultimately that's sort of drawing together summarizing what we were then and what we always will be um because that's what schools try and do mm. that's really great to hear that that you know that progression and that that arc that you went on um matt and i'm, I'm really sorry to hear <laughs> about you and your wife's miscarriage it's really eye-opening to to hear that um you went through something so raw so so close to the basically the pre-production of the show um Obviously, this was a show that went out on the primetime evening slot on Channel 4. Mm. Were you, the wider staff, and, and maybe the students who were involved in those stories, prepared at all for the level of fame that would be placed upon you, <coughs> however short-term for them it may have been? And, and, and how did you deal with the impact of that on your mental health as well? Um, yes, we were prepared for it. Like I said, 2-4 and Channel 4 left no stone unturned in preparing us for what was to come. Um, but they can only prepare you so much. You know, for things like training for questions from journalists and training for um, interviews you know, on, on TV shows and that sort of thing. Yes, you can do as much as you can do. You can do all the training you like. Um, but when it comes to it and you've got a, a huge audience and you know, you've got, you, you're acutely aware that whatever you're speaking on has been broadcast across the nation, um, it's a very different feeling. So it's almost like that. You know, England, play, England practicing penalties before a World Cup that you know, they can practice as many, as many as they want. They can span, slam a million penalties in the top left-hand corner and not even think about it in, uh, in, pra in in training. But when it comes to the main event, you can either nail it or you can sort of fluff your lines a little bit. So, yes, they prepared us for it. And, and they, you know, they certainly didn't try and um, say that, you know, this is just going to be stuck on at 11 o'clock at night and nobody will see it sort of thing. No, they, they, they had high expectations for it and they had goals for it and that was the right thing to do. Because I think they realised, like I said, that people were there just grafting, working hard, doing the best for students and students were just amazing and brilliant and it was wonderful to be a part of. So, yeah, they prepared us for it and it's an impact on, on mental health. I think it's 
It's a very surreal situation to be in uh, when other people know you are. And I remember the first time I knew of it was when I was sitting in a restaurant in Wakefield after episode one or episode two, and people in the table next to me and my wife were talking about my boss. No, they'd never met him, but they were talking about him. And I sort of kept my head down and listened. Um, and, and, and then from there, it just sort of snowballed. I, you know, the, the, it, it, again, it can go one of two ways. I think you can either... Um, it will be very, very easy to, to, to fall down the trap of thinking, well, you know, I've completed that now, mate. I'm, you know, I'm obviously amazing at what I do. Or you can think, actually, right, people respect what we're doing because um, we're clearly trying and, and doing the best we possibly can. And um, no, nobody in the school ever subscribed to the first one. Nobody was ever sort of thinking, right, well, that's it now. Job done. Tick that box. Move on. Uh, completed teaching. No, that's not the case at all. And students as well, they were really, really, really well prepared for what was to come. Um, you know, I remember one particular episode when somebody was saying something unkind about a student online. Within half an hour of the episode starting, one of the production team was on a train up from London to be there on that evening to, to support them and help them. And they were, they were just wonderful people who let us know that we, they, were, they were there any time of the day or night. Because um, it is a weird, weird, weird feeling to, 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 to not be able to walk around, you know, the town that you're from without people looking at you and going, oh my God, it's that teacher. Because, you know, whilst I'm always a teacher, um, usually, for most teachers, people don't know that you're a teacher unless you tell them. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it was a, so it was weird, and it continues to be weird. You never, you're never off duty anyway as a teacher. You're always, you know, you're always looking if somebody's shirts untucked or somebody's ties not done up or something like that. But um, it, it, we were prepared, we were ready, and then it was just down to what, uh, you know, we were prepared, we were ready. It was just then down to what, um, how that articulated itself and how things went. Um, and for Channel 4 and 2.4 and everybody else, it went really, really, really well. That wasn't to say it wasn't difficult at times, because, yeah, of course it was. Uh, and there were bits within episodes that 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 would, were difficult to watch. But then that's the reality of schools that, unfortunately, sometimes we will get things wrong. 99.9% of the time, you, you, you get it right. There's the odd occasion where people get things wrong. Um, and, and, and these things do happen. Do you think, looking back, Matt, that... The fact that it was around 2012, 2013, and maybe social, the social media explosion hadn't come so soon that the kids were perhaps better able to deal with it because they didn't ha maybe have the advent of Instagram and Snapchat and uh, maybe TikTok and all these other things, which are now kind of having a massive influence on kids from a really, really young age, not just sort of secondary school. Um, I mean, the main medium it went, it went crackers on was uh, Twitter. And, mm. you know, I remember one, uh, for, the, for one of the episodes, the Musharraf episode, I remember in particular, one of, the, one, of the, one of the breaks in the episode, we were watching it in the school hall and I remember putting my phone in my pocket, just switching it off and thinking, right, okay, just watch it and then go back to that later. And by the time I picked my phone up, it was red hot and it had run out of battery. And I switched it back <laughs> on and it was like thousands of notifications. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, th th there are fewer... There, sorry, back then there were fewer channels, obviously. There were fewer platforms... Uh, but there was still Facebook and there was still Twitter. And it wasn't like we were living in some sort of society where people didn't have that connectivity. They did. It was just different different ways of, of, of doing it, I think. It mainly, I mean, Instagram was just getting off the ground. Twitter was was big. Uh, we had to talk about your story on the show now, and in particular your relationship with one of the students called Musharraf. Now, for any of the listeners who have been living under a rock, maybe, and don't know his story, just tell me a bit about Musharraf and, and how you came to have an influence in his life uh, 
shape it a little bit and what you did on the show for him and what he did for himself, maybe? Yeah, I mean, Mush was um, was in my class from year seven, really. I think I taught him every year apart from one, uh, but I still sort of knew him around the place. And uh, in year seven, he he arrived with us. And what we do, we do sort of extensive um, transition work with students. And they, you, you get to know about them and, and their, their families and the habits and that sort of thing from, and, and obviously needs that they've got from the primary schools that they're coming from. And it was very clear with Mushraf that he had a very pronounced stammer and he struggled with that. It, it, it was, confidence wasn't wasn't incredible either. So when, we, when he arrived with us, um, he did struggle. He worked hard and he was always... You know, pleasant with it and kind with it. But he wasn't. He wasn't immensely um, confident in having a having a go and trying to get through it and trying to blast through it. Uh, as a school community, what we did for Musharraf was we worked with him. Um, yes, on his on his stammer, but also on his his confidence, which was at rock bottom. Um, you know, he'd had he'd had pelters. He'd been bullied. He hadn't been you know treated particularly nicely by some kids because. Some kids, some kids can can pick on weakness. Of course they do. That's you know that's always been the case, and I'm sure it always will be the case. Unfortunately, and it's very very few, thankfully. Um, but what we did with him was worked with him and, and, and let him know that actually you're part of a community here where it's all right to, to not get things right first time. It's all right for things to go wrong. Um, and in time, what we did was built up his confidence, and that sort of year seven, eight, nine, ten and 11 wasn't a case of click your fingers and go in a room and put some headphones on and speak you know he wouldn't have attempted that had he not felt welcomed and and, and you know confident in almost failure in a, in, a, in a sense because that you know that that sort of moment those sorts of things and techniques he'd tried before not the headphones thing in particular but he tried a, you know a few things before that hadn't worked but actually it says a lot about him that he was up for it and he wanted to try and go again and, and just do whatever he could to, to get where he needed to be and wanted to be. Um, so I will always, always, always praise him for the fact that he just tried and tried and tried and tried and never, ever, ever gave up and gave it everything. And that comes from a community in a school that wants to push him, but equally it comes from the wider community of his friends and his family who got behind him and never saw it as a barrier. They always saw it as something that they could get through and work through together. And when he first articulated that poem that you asked him to read using those headphones, what on earth was that feeling like as a teacher? You know, did you realise in that moment that it was going to change both your lives forever? Or, or so you, were you overwhelmed with pride, but also professional pride in, in, a, in being a teacher as well? Yeah, I mean, when it happened, I, I, I mean, I just remember being a bit stunned, really, because I'd never heard him coherently put a sentence together that was that, that fluent. Um, and it was wonderful. So I called my colleague in, Karen, and we sat there and um, he did a little bit more. And you could see on his face he was delighted. And I remember just feeling like, that was nice, that was good. And then I didn't think much more of it, really, because I had to go down to a, a pretty serious meeting downstairs within sort of five minutes of that happening. And then I saw one of the production company uh, in reception um, sort of, what, half an hour later, something like that? And he was, he was sort of rubbing his eyes. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hay fever season, certainly. And I said to him, did you, you know, did you see that? Because at that point, you don't know whether it's been captured or whether it's not been captured or whether it's been, you know, they were on two... Because I think they could only be on two cameras out of 58 or something um, mm. in the school at any one time. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've been sobbing our eyes out. And uh, I sort of got... I thought then, oh, well, that could be... You know, it might look good, that. And then didn't think more of it until sort of eight, nine months later when we saw it, before it came out. Um... And then, genuinely, my biggest concern was what swear word came out of my mouth when he'd actually done it. Because um, it could have been a very different clip if I'd sort of dropped an expletive. But, uh, but it wasn't. Um, 
And I'm sure they'd have done an Eddie job on that anyway if, uh, if that had been the case. The show came to its dramatic conclusion with probably one of the most magical and memorable moments on British television as Musharraf delivered a speech to his entire year group at the end of year 11. Now, you were in that assembly. What was the atmosphere like? You know, uh, what were the staff feeling? How did you feel in that moment? And maybe some, maybe some insider knowledge about what the cameras perhaps didn't see. Yeah, I mean, the, the Leaving Assembly, as everybody knows at school, is always a weird thing. I mean, we, we had it that year on the same day as the prom. So when you watch it back, you'll be able to see that there's a lot of girls who are sort of turning up um, with the first base coat of fake tan on. There's tiaras everywhere. There's sort of platinum blonde um, hair dye that's been done. And, and the amount of excuses we had that morning about why people couldn't come in for sort of dentist appointment and uh, routine doctor's appointment, that sort of thing. <laughs> and then amazingly, they turn up with, you know, with a fake tan on or, or the nails done or whatever. Um, it was was incredible. But they were handing out tissues on the way in. It was one of the deputy heads at the time was handing out tissues on the way in. And I, I, she'd always done it. Um, but I didn't think, well, I, I thought, well, you know, I was five, six years in at that point. I thought, well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see him off. It's always sad, uh, but I, I managed to stop myself from crying. And then um, nobody knew that that was going to happen, apart from him and, uh, and Lynn Marsden, the head of year uh, seven at the time, who was sort of hosting the assembly, because she'd been there head of year in year seven. And um, yeah, he just did it, and it was amazing. And there were there were lads on the front row who were sort of captain of the rugby team, captain of the football team. We'd always been seen as sort of macho and... You know, the, the, the real alpha males in the year group who were, you can watch it back and they are sobbing their eyes out. And one of them came back at parents' evening the, uh, the year after because his little brother was going to school still. They said, sir, why did you put me on telly crying? Because lads at college have had a right go at me. Um, and uh, it was just a night, you know, it was, it was only joking. It was, it was just lovely, a really, you know, absolutely lovely celebration of one young man's um, achievements in that one room. But, it, you know, everybody's... Everybody's been through something at school, haven't they? Everybody's been through something where it doesn't go right or something where they don't feel like they can go on and, and, and they're, they're, they're grappling with something. And I think it's not just a young man overcoming a stammer. It, it, it's symbolic of everybody's journey through school. There's always been something. And usually, yes, it's less pronounced and less emphatic than that was. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it was still a, a, a seismic moment and a wonderful moment and something I'm, you know, I'll always be really, really proud of him for, for, for overcoming what he did in the way that he did. And that didn't mean to say that he was, you know, it, it was, his stammer had gotten, it hadn't, and he still struggles with it now, but it was, it was a, you know, it was the first sign of the fight back, I think, something that he could get his teeth into and say, right, okay, yeah, I can do this. How are we going to do it? How are we going to move it forward? So it's, uh, so it's something that can continue. And um, he's just a wonderful, well, he's, he's not a young lad now, he's a, he's a fully grown human man, uh, which is always terrifying when I see him. Because they do grow up, it turns out. After the show finished, Matt, um, Musharraf took part in another Channel 4 show, which I can imagine is probably a bit more terrifying than, than speaking in front of your year group, which was First Dates. Now, for those who haven't watched the episode, you actually chaperoned him on the date, didn't you? Just just tell me a bit about that experience as well. Yeah, so I went down to London with uh, my family and then I think the, the intention was to just go and sort of um, be, there, give him a bit of pep talk before. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it went well and I was only there sort of I wasn't there long um, at all but obviously you know it's made to look a certain way um, yeah and sort of helped him out where I could uh, I mean you know what you teach you going on a date do you with you so it's, it's a bit it's a bit uh, you know surreal for me but I got a nice steak uh, and that was that, that was that really 
now we've got the show out of the way, Matt, I want to talk a little bit about your teaching journey now and if we can go down, if we can go on a trip down memory lane a little bit. So, so first of all, what, what inspired you to want to be a teacher and, and how did you enter the profession and start your journey? Um, I'd love to have some sort of romantic ideal of, of that I've wanted to be a teacher since the age of three or four, but the reality is I came to the end of uni and, and didn't quite have much of an idea about what I want to do. Um, and then friends were sort of going for for teacher training and I thought actually, you know, when you add the components of it together, I thought actually that sounds pretty good. That sounds like something I might enjoy. So I looked into it, did a bit of work experience, applied that year, didn't get on the course that year and then uh, went back the year after. And it was the first time really in my life I've had to go back to something and think, do I really want to do it and risk failure again? And I thought actually at that point, I thought, yeah, I do really want to do it. So I went back, gave it a go, uh, got on the course at Leeds Uni that year, PGCE. And then from there, uh, got the job at Thornhill. I was lucky enough to get the job at Thornhill, following my, my placement schools. And then the rest, you know, that's sort of, what, 2006? So, well, what, 14 years on now? Uh, and I'm still I'm still there. And, and who was the Matt we met at this point, just before he went to Thornhill and, and when he was starting out? Is it someone vastly different to the one we meet now? Or what, what can you sort of tell me about that journey? I do think about that sometimes. I think about what was I like then and, and what am I like now. I don't think I'm hugely different. Um, I think I'm a bit more reflective about things um, and I think you, you need to be when you work in a, in a place like like a school uh, you've got to think about the consequences of your actions a little bit more rather than being a, you know, a teenager and being a bit daft sometimes um, and obviously you know it's a responsible role I think obviously I'm, you know, I'm a dad and that's my most important job I'll ever do um, and that has changed and shaped me but equally I think the things that made me me you know, I've always I've always cared about what people think. I've always cared about people's, how people feel. Um, and I've always enjoyed sort of being around people and, uh, you know, in conversation, that sort of thing. And that doesn't change. And really, the person I am now is just a grown-up version of, of, of that guy. I think, you know, you, you take some wax along the way, don't you? You take things that... I once spoke to somebody who said, actually, you don't know where your sort of hang-ups come from because it can be like... You, you can be shot by a, a gun that's been shot in a farmer's field three, you know, 300 metres away. It's not that they're aiming at you, it's just that things happen to you in your life and um, you don't know why, it, why the impact on you is what it is so far down the road. Uh, but ultimately, what, what makes me me is, is the stuff that I've always done, really, which is trying to get on with people. You know, I care about what people think. Um, I like to enjoy life and I like to sort of socialise and that sort of thing. That's never changed. Um, it's... Yeah, it's I was just a bit, you know, a bit of a young, I suppose a young chap back then. And, uh, you know, you grow up, don't you, over time? You have to do. And when you arrived at Thornhill, Matt, just talk to me now about the sort of head teacher opportunity. Uh, did you ever have ambitions of being a head teacher? Was it something that presented itself and you thought, I've just got to give this a go and even if I don't get it, you know, how did you feel when you, when you found out you'd gotten it? Was there a bit of imposter syndrome or just a sense of, crikey, how did I manage that? Or genuine excitement? You know, talk to me about that whole process. Yeah. So... When I arrived at Thornhill, I've, I've had an imposter syndrome at every role that I've ever had um, in a school. I always think, like, how on earth am I in charge? I remember being a classroom teacher when I started thinking, well, I don't want to de-educate them. I don't want them to lose knowledge because it's a direct result of my dreadful teaching. And then you get that confidence slowly but surely by the fact that they don't. And, um, you know, kids are resilient and they, they, they help you through your difficult bits of bit of teaching, you know, when you're starting out. And then... In terms of sort of my rise to, to the head role, I never thought, you know, when I started, I never thought I'm going to be a head teacher, definitely. I never, never even piqued my interest at all. Uh, but I've worked with some really, really wonderful leaders and people 
who I've taken, I've tried to take bits from. I think you've got to be a bit of a magpie in these sort of circumstances. You take the bits that you you like, uh, and you've got to craft them into your own your own vision of things. And I think your values are really important as well. And um, the, the the values of of, of Thornhill are I was I'm really proud of, and I'm really sort of um, will robustly stick to. And they are they are incredibly important. And I think really my, my sort of ascent to, if you like, to, to the role of head teacher has been um, over a long, you know, a reasonably long period of time. Uh, it is still quite a young time to be getting a, a headship, but it felt like the right time when my predecessor left. Uh, I'd just done um, a course called the, the it's a future leaders course with a with a, a, a leadership agency called Ambition School Leadership at the time. And I was on with my uh, national professional qualification for headship. And I thought, well, can I do it? And at, at that point, you don't know if you can do it. Of course you don't. Until you've done something, you don't know whether you can. But do you have some ideas that can hopefully, potentially make a difference? Uh, and I thought the answer was, was yes. I, I thought I had some ideas that could shift things on and hopefully move things positively. Um, but not let go of the things that got us where we were. We'd worked really, 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 really hard for many, many years. In the previous three years, we'd worked to get some real uh, rigour and routine and order and systems in place. Um, and it was a, a case of keeping that tightness, but introducing other bits and pieces. And uh, I do know that, you know, my previous head teachers are still available if I need to ring them. I, I, I routinely do for advice. And that's what we've got to do, isn't it, in life? You've got to, you can't be a, a martyr to it. You can't be a hero all the time. You've got to understand that other people are there and um, and they're there for a reason. That's great to hear, Matt. And and the arc that you've gone on is 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 really positive. I think, and I think it's going to be a really positive message for all the listeners to hear as well. Um, mental health is obviously something that means a lot to me and a lot to Vent, Matt. And I'm sure it does for you too. How do you try and ensure that Thornhill is the best mental health environment possible for for staff and students alike, so they can succeed? And what processes or programs have you implemented since you became head teacher to to make sure that's that's possible? Um, I think, well, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, the, one of the biggest keys to, to ensuring that people are healthy mentally is to not just say things, it's to, to do them and to mean them. Um, I believe in the power of clarity. I believe in being really clear about things. And if things are going well um, and they're having an impact, there's, there's no point loading more and more and more and more onto people. If things aren't going well, there's no point doing things that are not having an impact and, and, and we change them around. But so just an example of some of the things you brought in. My, my, my rules that... Of course there are rules behind them, but the expectations are for everybody, whether it's members of staff, whether it's students, whether it's parents and carers, whether it's visitors, whoever it is, be nice and work hard. And that's what we're all living under. That's what we're all doing. Uh, that's the expectation that everybody will meet. And if you're not doing that, then there's a, you know, there's a problem that we have to have a conversation about. And that's about you know, holding to account. Um, and being really clear about that and not just because somebody's, you know, X, Y, or Z role is about not allowing that to, to be for sale. It's not, you know, we, we've all got a responsibility to that. You know, added to that, another thing that I talk about is that we do a few things exceptionally. I think in, in schools, sometimes you, you can find schools that do a million and one initiatives that are skin deep. Actually, what I want us to do are things that are really purposeful, have a real impact and, and, and really drive home priorities and, and, and ultimately, impact on young people and what that leads to there is a really what i like to think that when we do a lot of work around this is is work-life balance you've got to be a human being and you need to be that person as a teacher or a member of staff who decided to apply for that job in the first place everybody's fire was lit to be a teacher on the first day of their teacher training or the first day of their first job 
and they were enthusiastic and they were loving it and they thought actually I absolutely can't wait to do this again and sometimes people can lose the way a bit with that it can be, become a little bit disillusioned because of you know all the things you hear about with teaching the paperwork and the stuff that you got wade through and all that and this, this, it's right that there's a lot you know there, there are a lot of bits and pieces and checks and balances and measures and stuff are in place of course they are they have to be um, but what we try and do is do a few things really well and light that fire in, in, in staff give them that professional ownership of what they're doing to make sure that they teach in the way that they um, you know that they 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 teach best um, and if that has an impact and that you know they're on the bus with us and they want to, to, to make an impact with us then that's brilliant in terms of other things that we do, uh, we, we have access to, to life coaches and um, we, we've got three who come in a day a week and, and work with students and, and are available for staff as well. And we've got you know, just a culture of, of, of looking after people that where things do go wrong, people are not intended to be martyrs. You're not intended to be the person who's the hero and can fight every battle and win everything for everybody. Um, it, it's all right not to be okay. That's, that, that's how it is. And I'm not okay sometimes. And, you know, things happen to me, whether that is in school, whether it's things I'm worried about, about, you know, uh, government outcomes or progress or whether I'm worried, worried about one child in particular, what they're going home to, whatever it may be. Um, and everybody else is the same. Everybody's got things on the mind that they'd rather not have on the mind. And it's about having the culture to be able to say, that's all right to feel like that. Talk about it. Let's let's get that sorted. Let's work it through and let's uh, let's get you back to that person again and, um, and, and, and get you back out in front of the students and make an impact. In terms of kids... Uh, We've got to look after their own brains. Um, I say to staff, you know, you look after your own mind to help nurture theirs. You've got to be, you know, you've got to be that, that person for every second of every minute of every hour. Um, and, and, and really being the, the, the role model for them. But looking after students is more than that. It's about having that culture of, 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 of positive conversations, about a culture of safeguarding, uh, referring students on to the right places when they need it. Because, uh, you know, of course we're going through a... a, a, a child and adolescent mental health uh, emergency at the moment it's, a, it's difficult to get those referrals through um, and we've got to do everything we can at school to support that and help young people to, to battle through those difficult things that they're going through because there are more and more and more every single day every single week every single month and year it's um, you know that's nationally as well it's it's a tough time uh, there's a lot of pressure on young people and uh, things like we're living through at the moment won't, won't help people's anxiety at times. That's really great to hear. And, and I think uh, the listeners will be really pleased to see how all the processes and, and programmes you've got in place help those Thorn, Thornhill students, Matt. Um, just one more question on, on your role now, um, before we move on to the podcast, because I'm sure you want to talk about it. Um, what do you think have been your biggest challenges in this job so far? What have been the biggest positives? You know, how has this role grown you as a person and as a teaching professional and have you picked up any new skills in this job or, or perhaps improved existing ones as well? I think the main thing I was relying on when I took this job is that the, you become responsible for, ultimately responsible for everything in the, in the organisation and what I was hopeful was that existing knowledge that I had that would sort of fall out of that ear and new knowledge would filter into the brain from the other ear and then you'd, you know, you'd just have a, a uh, you know, a, a decent knowledge in everything. And that is the case. I've got more knowledge in, in areas that when I first start teaching, you know, budgets, for example, you wouldn't have a clue about as, a, as an initial teacher. You wouldn't, well, you might have a clue about, but you wouldn't know it in the depth about where you need to save and where you need to recruit and how much you can recruit to and you know, all those sorts of things. Um, what I've learned is about me as a, as a person is that I'm probably, uh, you know, I've, 
in a sense, stronger than, than I thought perhaps I was. Um, you know, I can get through things and battle through things. I think a bit of self-belief has, has developed as well because, you know, we haven't, we haven't broken it, we haven't ruined it. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm just about that. And that's part of that imposter syndrome coming through, really, that I think everybody who goes into roles like head teacher, you sort of think, I suppose you go in one of two ways. You either think, right, yeah, I've got this 100%, I can do this, I've done it before, and that comes from experience. Or you go into it thinking, if it's your first one, crikey, how on earth am I going to do this? I think it, what it, a lot of it is about building a, a cohesive team, uh, having good people facing the right way, on the right seats, on the bus, going the right direction, to use a, a, a metaphor and um, or an analogy. And, and I think that's what we've got. I can't be 10 out of 10 on everything in terms of knowledge, and I, I can't be a superhero for every bit of the school. What I've got to do is create a team and create a culture where people are experts in the field and I can rely on them and I can work with them and to ask them the right questions and develop that. So I think that's that's developed as well, my ability to ask the right questions um, and get the you know the answers that I need and want. But also, it's that judge of character and judge of people that you've, you've got to have the right people doing the right things. Otherwise, you can have an old area of your school that's not moving in the right direction or the same direction as everywhere else. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is a real challenge. It's a challenge every day and I certainly never, ever, ever go in and think, yep, completed this, done it. Moving on now, and you are officially a published author. You put out your first book, Go Big, The Secondary School Survival Guide, in February of this year. Just tell me why you wanted to write the book, your motivations for doing it, and how it came about. Well, uh, the publisher, Hachette, got in touch with me, and I was speaking to Laura Horsley, um, who was the, I think, senior editor, uh, over a couple of months. And I think initially the conversation was about, there is going to be a book written about this, we think. Um, Would you like to be involved in it? And yeah, my answer was, yeah, of course, I'd love to be involved in it. And then... I sent some things over and I had a thought about it and sort of developed an idea of what I, I thought would be really, really positive for young people to have. And, um, and it just went from there, really. And I was, I was really, really, really delighted to write, write the book. I think it's something that I don't see as, obviously, it's not a silver bullet that's going to you know, slay every one of your fears and going to sort everything out for everybody who's starting secondary school, especially this year, which is going to be a really difficult time without the time that... that there would be now doing those early transition bits up to secondary school. Of course, it isn't going to be, you know, the, the, the thing that solves it for everybody. But what I hope it will be is a sort of a friend on your shoulder, something on your shelf that you can call on when, you, when you're worrying about things like bullying, when you're worrying about things like exams, when you're worrying about things like friends and friendship and losing your old friends and gaining new ones. So it's a real privilege and an honour to, to write Go Big. I was absolutely chuffed when they asked me to do it. Um, and I loved the process of writing it. And the edit was was uh, was all fun as well. I mean, it's less fun than writing it. Um, but as an English teacher, I tend to use sort of five, six words when I could use one or two. And uh, I found that, you know, it, that, that's a skill in itself is being a bit more succinct. Um, that's probably the answers on this podcast would, would tell you. Um, it'll get to lots sort of Lord of the Rings like this. And then it, it was just a real privilege and pleasure and something that I really do hope and think will help help people when they're going up to, to secondary school. Um, and hopefully as well, you know, what I, what I want is for parents to read it and teachers to read it as well and just gives a bit of a reminder of what kids are going through and what students are suffering from and with and struggling with. Um, and actually when we're asking them to, you know, tuck your shirt in, put your tie on, those are expectations. But for some kids, it's an absolute dream that they're, they're there in a shirt and in a tie. And um, you know, some people's journey to school is, is an absolute nightmare it's horrendous the lives are, are, are really really difficult and what I want to do is, is give something in terms of a structure a bit of support to those people who really would be struggling with, with that structure beforehand equally you know it's something that I hope that um, 
a good, good, good number of people will get to because I, I, I do genuinely think it's helpful. I was reading it actually when I got a copy through, uh, and I thought actually, actually it's quite good this, um, which I was delighted with because I wrote it, so I was, I was quite chuffed with that. So, and I wasn't in a you know that wasn't in a sense that patting myself on the back. I thought, cracking, did I write this? But I did because uh, I looked back on my computer and checked. I definitely did write it. Just quickly, Matt, just tell me um, about what the response and feedback has been to the book from from teachers and the public alike. And also, just as well, talk to me a bit about the podcast that you started until further noticed and why you wanted to do it. Yeah, so the response to the the book has been really positive and I've been absolutely delighted. Um, Obviously, you know, it came out in February, so it's quite an early book. It was sort of in time for secondary school places going out to people and people finding out what secondary school place they had. But... um, uh, that, the, what we'll do again later on um, is, 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 is have another, you know, make people know it's there again, and, and hopefully over sort of July and August, people can really get the teeth into it and have a read. But the, the, the feedback's been really, really, really positive. Um, I suppose you can only go on. You know, if people are talking to my face; they're probably unlikely to say that's a load of absolute rubbish. But even reviews on websites and that sort of thing have been have been really positive, and I've been chuffed. Um, and then it, it, it's something that when I've spoken to. To, to kids who've read it or, or um, friends and colleagues who've, whose kids have read it, they've said it's been really helpful and it's been really good. And some existing year sevens and eights and, and nines have, have had it and have just taken a chapter and thought, actually, that's really helped me with this particular bit of, of my journey to school. So that's, um, yeah, that's something I'm really chuffed with and really really happy with because that's why we did it. You know, That's why the, the publisher wants to write it. That's why I want to write it, that genuinely we want it to be helpful and supportive and really move mountains for young people who are... Who are going through a really difficult time in history now and and some of them will be really struggling with it and then in terms of the podcast when we were closed until further notice by uh, Gavin Williamson and Boris Johnson sort of simultaneously um, and you know apart from for, for critical workers kids and, um, and and those vulnerable students which is absolutely the right thing to do it, it sort of thrust into the limelight these these supply teachers in waiting who've never known they're going to have to be supply teachers and that's parents across the land and the number of sort of terrified phone calls from from parents we took about what we're going to do and how I'm going to do it and what we're going to teach and that sort of thing was was really alarming and, and, and interesting so myself and my, my, my friend and colleague Chris Edwards who's a head teacher at uh, Brighton Hill Community School in Basingstoke got our heads together and thought well why don't we put something together we've talked about doing a podcast before why don't we you know work on, on, on putting that, that together and people obviously talk about in this time when there is a little bit more time and you can't go out and do other things to spend a bit more time learning a new skill and I've never ever ever it's something I've been, always been interested in putting a podcast together but I've never done it at all I've had my voice recorded for them and like this and, and various others I've, I've done um, but I've never put one together myself so I want to challenge myself to do that and it's, it's been really interesting the process of doing that but it's called Until Further Notice because that's when schools are closed until we'll do them as regularly as possible and the idea is that Chris and I speak to parents speak to teachers speak to guests who can help uh, talk about and signpost people towards some really good resources that parents can use and and students can use and also reflect on on what has been a really difficult time for sort of the corona kids the kids who are coming towards the end of year 11 and end of year 13 who are left with this great unknown about what exam outcomes they're going to have because they're not doing their exams anymore so it's you know it's a really interesting time for education and the nation's now full of these teachers who until a few weeks ago, were not teachers. They were parents doing a full-time job in an office or, you know, up and down the country. And now they are doing a full-time job and also teaching their children. And that's a really interesting dynamic. And it's something that some people absolutely fly with. Of course, they're doing an amazing. And they're all doing an amazing job. 
but some people are really struggling with it. Uh, and we're there for everybody. We want to be that go-to place for teachers who are sort of missing the, the staff room bants. I hate that word, but you know what I mean. Um, for, you know, for, and for parents as well who, who might want signposting towards some resources and, and actually might want that tap, pat on the back to say, yep, yeah, you're doing a good job, keep it going. Use this, use that. Here's a bit of a tip. Like, for example, the most recent one we've done, we've spoken to um, the, the CEO of Memorize, which is a, a memory uh, memory so, uh, app about it helps people learn languages called Ed Cook. And he's really, really interested about the power of memory and how he can remember things. Um, and that was really, really interesting. And that will be up very, very soon. But Chris and I were left really interested uh, by that. Ed's a really, really interesting bloke. And, and it's something that I think genuinely will help people to, to get a... Um, you know, to get a handle on one or two things that can start to build those tools in their armory to, to, to see this for the medium and long term because we don't know how long it's going to be until we're back. And of course, the name Until Further Notice comes from the fact that we are closed until further notice. There's no secrets there. We don't know any more than anybody else does. Um, we're shut until they tell us otherwise. Let's dive a bit deeper now, Matt, and talk about your own mental health journey. Now, I should say before we start this that uh, if any of the listeners can hear a bit of bird song, that is because uh, Matt is enjoying a lovely time in his garden recording this pod and obeying the social distancing guidelines. You say that. You say you say I'm enjoying some time in my garden. Ultimately, lockdown with two kids is wonderful and an absolute blessing. I know it's an absolute blessing, and it's to spend more time with kids is amazing. But the number of things that I get, I'm, I'm, I'm doing sort of um, the amount of crafting. I've never done so much crafting in my entire life. Uh, fixing jet washers. Uh, I mean, that's not for the kids, just as a, to clarify. Um, like gardening, my hands are absolutely t- torn to ribbons from from gardening yesterday. And I wrestled with an, an enormous tree slash bush um, and got into a mild, uh, mild disagreement with my wife because I've filled the garden bin and it's not been collected until the foreseeable future, off the foreseeable future. So... Enjoying a bit of time in the garden's lovely, isn't it? But um, it's uh, it's 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 never quite as simple as just that, is it? One hundred percent. And I can definitely say that I share a little bit of those things, but without the, um, I guess the the intricacies of being a dad. Uh, so, just quickly, Matt, I just wanted to just ask a question about Huddersfield because me and you both support town. We're both we're both hardcore fans, and there was a particular moment uh, a few years ago where. Your role as um, head teacher at Thornhill and Huddersfield combined a little bit. Why don't you just talk quick, very quickly about that? Yeah, so a few years ago, um, I got to know Sean Jarvis and uh, a lot of the people at town through, obviously through the you know the programme uh, and all that sort of stuff. I've been a season ticket holder since I was about three, four, something like that. When they used to be, they used to be completely free for uh, for kids if an adult bought one. And my dad used to take me all Leeds Road ground. Uh, my first game, I think, was 90... I think I've done some research on this because I remember it being 3-0 to Reading and being utterly uninspired and also bored. I mean, th- these are all feelings we've felt before at town games, even as, like, adults. But um, <laughs> I, I think it was a 3-0 loss, and I think it was 1988 or 89. Um, and I remember coming out thinking, that were rubbish, but also it got, you know, it got bitten by the bug a little bit. Um, I remember this, the first goal that we scored that I saw. I can't remember who it was against, but the, the, the memory I have of it was um, dropping a coin. And the old terracing at Leeds Road used to be sort of stepped. And I just remember seeing this coin go down the steps, like just the, 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 all the way to the bottom. Um, and I'd lost that. My dad wouldn't let me go get it. Rightly so. Um, so, you know, and then since the, 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 the programme, the, the documentary, um, that, you know, that came up. I think I had a mug in the series or something like that. And... Um, 
and some of the guys from the town got in touch and I, I, I did some work with their charity, the Town Foundation, which is incredible and does some absolutely incredible, incredible work. Uh, and they, they, they do a fully funded breakfast club at Thornhill, which I'm so, so, so grateful for. Uh, kids can just turn up, get some breakfast and, and start the day positively without having to fill themselves with Skittles and Red Bull or indeed nothing. Um, it's absolutely fabulous. So uh, when, and when I was sort of getting to know the, the, the guys from um, the foundation, I got speaking to Sean Jarvis, who's the, I mean, he's leaving, isn't he? But uh, he's a fantastic fella. And he's, um, he, he asked me if I'd like to be school's ambassador. And the, the, what, what it basically entails is when they need a bit of advice or when there's something to do with schools that they, they, they might like me, my, my take on, um, they'll, they, they, you know, they might get in touch. And it's um, to, to get my name in the programme. Um, and, you know, there was a time when I was announced as almost like a sign-in for town or, you know, like the picture in front of the canal side and all that. And that was an absolute dream come true because, believe, believe you me, my footballing uh, abilities were never, ever, ever going to get me there. Um, but to, to, have, to have an esteemed pitcher on the decking outside Canal Side was, was enough for me. So, um, yeah, and, that, and that's what it is really. Just, you know, it's, it's, not, I'm not, it's not a day-to-day involvement or anything like that, but it's an, an honour to be involved. In, and they know that if, if they need anything schools-wise, I'm more than happy to support and help. And uh, I'll always do anything I possibly can because, uh, you know, town fan and... Um, uh, you know, it's, it's such a good club, good people who are trying to do the right things and are not just eleven players on a pitch paying them ridiculous, ridiculous money. This is a you know, it's a community club. Even in the time of the Premier League, they were doing more and more and more in the community than than a great deal of other clubs. And the you know, Dean Hoyle and then and then Phil Hodgkinson since are genuinely trying to do good in the community and make people's lives better. So anything that I can do is is you know, more than happy to to support with that. Mm. I remember when that happened, and I and I sort of got flashbacks to uh, when everyone was um, thinking that someone had leaked the Izzy Brown signing. Now, for no, no, none of the listeners will actually know, apart from town fans, what that in-joke means, but I just thought it was hilarious. And it was, it was definitely a surreal moment. Um, let's just dive a little bit into your, your mental health journey now, Matt. So just, just talk to me a bit about your, your early life, you know, your teenage years, and whether looking back, there were any sort of early mental health experiences that you could pinpoint. Um, I mean... I was pretty much a you know bog standard, bog standard teenager. You know, you go, you get the rough with the smoother. You get, you go through the good stuff. You go through the non-good stuff. You go through the, the times where you feel a bit, at school and you're not quite up for it. And then you go through times that you think actually I can do this. It's 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 something I can, I can get through. Um, and you know there were no there was nothing, uh, nothing in my in my adolescence or early life that was, you know that would have been indicative of any huge seismic issues or anything like that um of course like anybody else I, I've, I've always there's always ups and downs and life's not a steady you know five six seven eight nine ten out of ten is it? it's never ten out of ten um and life's never going to be a ten out of ten of course it's not that's not realistic to expect it will be um and i wasn't daft enough to think that as a teenager but equally i'm you know i'm aware now as an adult that, that to get those those wonderful highs um they've got to be underpinned by, by negatives because otherwise there's a sense that um, otherwise you sort of flatline in mm. a sense, aren't you? I think it's almost like being a football fan. You know, the, the real football fans don't support a club for the glory. They support a club because you get the ups, you get the downs. It, for town, it's majority downs, but it means that we enjoy, we enjoy the ups a lot more, don't we? Well, I'll tell you what, for, for town, it was worth the 26-mile walk to Bury starting at 3 o'clock in the morning back in 2012... Um, as a, as a, it was a sponsored walk for the Town Foundation. We went 3-0 up as soon as we got there. We couldn't walk. We couldn't even stand to celebrate the goals. Um, 
And we were 3-0 up. We thought, actually, this is worth it. This is, this is brilliant. At least we're going to win. It ended up being a three-all draw. Um, so we drew three-all away at Bury FC. And I remember waiting for a taxi to get home from Bury, which wasn't cheap, frankly. And I remember at the time... Um, Seeing they were they were then League One, but they were highly paid League One players. I remember seeing them emerging from the uh, from the ground, walking across the the road to the the posh coach, and they were almost they almost looked at us to say, "Look, we're we're, we're sorry," because they could see we were sort of ha- absolutely hanging, and that sort of emotion as a as a town fan. And that was February as well, so it was obviously freezing cold and raining because it was you know it was it was the north of England. Um, you go through those, and that makes Christopher Schindler's penalty at Wembley um, all the more. All the more wonderful, doesn't it? Uh, if you just turned up as a neutral to watch Christopher Schindler almost scuff a penalty in, um, then you'd be like, "Yeah, that's nice," but yeah. but actually, the tears that came from it and the the, the one or two one or two Jaeger bombs that came off the back of it, I'll be honest, um, were were frankly delirious because of the fact that we we lived through it and we care about it. And you know, memories with football are like life, aren't they? You you pin everything you do to a to a memory mm. and. Um, for me, I remember. I remember the couple of days before the town playoff final to get to the, the the Premier League. I remember thinking a lot about my grandpa, who used to go to football with. Um, it's always been a family thing. Like my dad we still go with my dad. I'm a little boy now who's, who's sitting here. Um, he comes along, and he's only four. And he loves it. And it, I remember thinking about my grandpa, who, who died in 2000, I think it was, um, and thinking how chuffed he'd have been to see that as well. Because mm. and, and and that's the sort of that's life, isn't it? That you know, there are ups. There are downs, but I think you've just got to remember that through the downs, there's always going to be there's always going to be another up. There's always going to be another another sunny day in May 2017. There's always going to be you know a moment that makes you look back and think that person would have been really proud of that person would have been really chuffed. And even in the darkest times, there's always you know th- th- there's only ever 24 hours in a day. I think I, I saw Tyson Fury had said that recently, and it's, 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 it rings true, doesn't it? That even those dreadful days where it might be just it might be just the you know the normal monotonous downs of a of what we would have seen as a normal day. And actually, I think one of the... not that I know this is a dreadful, dreadful time we're living through and the, the number of people who are, are dying and are seriously ill is, is horrendous, but I think coming out the, the other end of it, what I'd like to see is that actually people start to appreciate life a little bit more. And if you're walking into work at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning and it's raining, then enjoy that rain on your face and enjoy the fact that you are walking into work and enjoy the fact that you've just come off the back of a a weekend where you've been able to go and do whatever you want to do um, because it, it, other people have got it a lot worse and um, yeah, life's always going to be ups and downs and uh, I think more so than ever before now we've got a real we've got a real role to play in, in, in sticking up for each other and helping each other and supporting each other and not not shying away from saying we're struggling if we're struggling. You talked about um, and you alluded to early on in the pod, Matt, about um, a really you know traumatic experience that <clears throat> that your that your wife went through uh, and you went through when you, when you, when she had a miscarriage. Now, if you could just just talk to me a little bit about that uh, and what it was like, and then also in the aftermath, the positives that came out of of you having going on to having two wonderful children as well. Yeah, at the time it was it was incredibly difficult to get through, and it's still you know it's still the sort of thing that you think about and you wonder what who would that person have been? You know, they would have been six coming up to seven now, and you do you do wonder. Um, mm. But at the time it was Christmas Eve, and we you know we, we we were told that the pregnancy wasn't viable or wasn't um, I can't remember what the word they used was. It was quite a pretty clinical word, but that's you know that's that's how it is. Um, and it was just a a real. It, it felt like a real kick in the teeth, you know. At this time in the year, 
when it's all about togetherness and people, you know, spreading good news and good cheer and all that sort of stuff. And I know people struggle a lot with their mental health at, at Christmas in particular when they should be doing something happy and you should be feeling this way and everything on social media is a certain way, isn't it, at that time of year? Uh, and there's only a few voices there that are there to say, look, we get it, it's rubbish sometimes. And I always try and do that. Um, but yeah, so Christmas Eve we found out that that, you know, wasn't going to be viable and then... Um, it just sort of drags on a while after that, and it was it's just a, a weird time. And I suppose you, you're going through what really are, you know, is grief, I, I suppose, because it's something that you, even mm. in the minute that mm. we heard that Laura was was pregnant with um, with that little person who never came to be, um, you know, as, if it's a boy, I've already got him as, as number nine for town in 25 years' time. Um, and then, to, you know, <laughs> when that goes, you think, ah, that's, you know, that's sad that that's not the case. I'm a firm believer that the universe has a, a way of, of working things out and I, I sit here now um, in what is positively a tropical Yorkshire day. It's about 12 degrees. Um, looking, at, uh, looking at Livia, who's six, and looking at Theo, who's four. Um, you know, and I know how incredibly lucky I am and, um, and we are. And, uh, you know, Laura's unbelievable. She's, she's a fantastically strong person and... Um, we're just overwhelmingly blessed to have these two fine people. But, it's, you know, these things are rubbish. They happen so, 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 so many times every single day to people. Um, and I think one of the things about miscarriages is, is they're not spoken about all that much, um, and especially by fellas, because it doesn't happen to you, but it happens, obviously, you know, you're a massive part of that because you've still got your own dreams and aspirations for what that baby will be and who will be and stuff. Um, yeah, and you work through these things together because, you know, Laura's my wife, that's not something that we're going to let you know get 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 to us and, and and stop that being the case um i love her and we got through it together and that's what you do amazing and i think it's your your openness and honesty i'm sure will help a lot of of, of men and women who, who will be listening to this pod matt um just quickly uh, uh about the sort of type of father that you are to your kids are you someone who's gonna sort of teach your your, your kids as well as your son that um it's okay to show emotion it's okay to vom- to show vulnerability from an early age and sort of teach them about mental health in the way that well my generation definitely wasn't taught and probably yours wasn't either uh, yeah definitely in terms of we, we talk about how we feel um and you know we're, we're, we're a, we are an open family we'll talk about stuff and we'll if they ask a question, whether it's about mental health or whether it's about where babies come from or something equally as, as, as squirming <laughs> as that, um, we try and do what we can, which is age appropriate to, to, to let the kids know what's, what's going on. Um, and I think now there's so, so, so many more resources and so much more support for, for mental health that it is on kids' agenda from much, much, much earlier. And being aware of your feelings is a massive part of that. You know, the, the books that are around, um, I think there's one called The Worrysaurus. There's... Um, there's one where the colour monster, I think it is, where people have got particular colours for particular emotions. And actually just being aware of it at a young age is really important. But yeah, where, where, where the kids are feeling sad or if they're feeling happy, then we, you know, we, we, we like to celebrate that where they're happy and we like to, we're there for them because they're our kids if, if they're not. And um, what we do, we do together and that's, that's really important. Uh, just as a final question, Matt, as I think it's, it's, it's really important that we, ha- we have a, a positive message as well that comes out of this topic. Um, if there were any dads... Or mums who are who have gone through a miscarriage, or are maybe sort of coming to terms with one right now. What advice or message would you give them about how to get through it, maybe, or just how to deal with it? I think the main piece of advice I would give if you're going through that is talk, and 
don't be forced into talking to people that you don't want to talk to. You know, talk at the time that's right for you. Talk to each other. Uh, you know, you are each other's strongest ally in that. And whether that's being upset or whether that's being positive about the future or whatever that looks like is, is the right thing to do. The last thing you want to do is bottle it up and, and, and keep it as if it's a shameful little secret, something that you, you can never talk about. Um, we've never done that, and that's a conscious choice, Laura and I both said. Uh, you know, obviously, when the programme came out, when Educate New Yorkshire came out many years ago, well, not many years ago, six years ago, whatever, um, I said, if this comes up, you know, one of the things I wanted to do off the back of it, if, if anything happened off the back of it, we didn't, of course, know, but I said, if, you know, if anything does come off it, and goodness me, it has, um, then if that raises awareness of this sort of thing, miscarriages that we were going through at the time it was filmed, then um, then brilliant. And, uh, you know, don't think it's not happening to other people at the same time as it's happening to you. It is ridiculously, ridiculously, ridiculously common. It's something that happens to a lot of people. And that in itself doesn't make anybody feel any better. And quite often, nothing will make you feel better about that until something can fill that void. You know, a, a little person can fill that void. And the sad thing about it is that for some people that doesn't happen. For the vast, vast, vast majority of people, it, it does. Um, but the one thing that did help us is we communicated and we spoke to each other and we got through it and didn't put any time pressure on getting through it. We got through it together and um, as quick or slow as we wanted to. And there were bits that were easy, there were bits that were difficult, there were bits that were challenging. Um, but I knew, you know, I had I had a, an absolute champion human being in my corner and Laura's just wonderful. Um, I mean, you'd have to ask her whether she thought that about me, but I'd like to think so. We're still together, so... Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's it's just a... If you are going through it, it's rubbish. I know it's rubbish. It's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. You know, you feel as if... You don't know what that feeling is, but it is. You know, it's, it's one of the stages of grief. Um, and I think, in a sense, just extrapolating it a little bit from, from that, I read a, an article in... Was it in... It was a, I can't remember what the website was, but it was, um, it was a link I saw on Twitter from, from somewhere. Uh, and it talks about the lockdown. It talks about what we're going through as a... As a, as a I suppose as a world at the moment and that feeling of uneasiness and that feeling of weirdness and not being sure about things that we're going through is a sense of grief um at the minute because we don't know what's going on and we're not quite sure and we you know we look for positives but there aren't that many out there and um but yeah it's, it's, it's a difficult time isn't it and, and there will be people going through that as well as going through the rest of what we're going through and to you Guys, if you're those people, I'm, you know, I'm sorry you're going through it. And, you know, if I can ever help, then, you know, feel free to get in touch. But um, just stick together and, and do what you can to, to support each other. And it will be okay. It's just it's time and communication and, and, and care and love and talking to the right people. And, you know, one of the things that I have done is, is a bit of work for the Miscarriage Association. I'm their ambassador. Um, and when I went on the chase a few years ago, I won them a bit, a bit of brass. And... Um, they do some fantastic work with people who go through it. Again, you can't do anything about it. You can't fix it. Of course you can't. But what you can do is, is be an ear, be a, um, a listener and, and, and be somebody who can, can care for other people, which is what I'm seeing more and more and more from people at the moment. You know, a bit of care and um, I think that's really important. Our final topic of conversation, Matt, and it's one that I have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I'm fair to middling. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, um, you know, it's, I'm happy. I'm very, very lucky. I know I'm very, very lucky. Of course, there's always bits that, you know, make you feel 
less positive and there's always those bits to counter it that are wonderful and brilliant and those sort of those lights in the darkness but yeah I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fine and I'm certainly not complaining excellent that's really good to hear and if you felt comfortable saying Matt what mental health issues if any do you live with or conditions and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say I really, you know, suffer with anything particularly. I, I'm a bit of an overthinker, and I do, I do ruminate on things. I think that part, that part of that is that imposter syndrome. You sort of any job that I do, you know, like for example, this podcast. I'm talking to you, um, and I'm th- sort of thinking, it was that the right answer to that bit, or was that the right answer to that bit, or should I have said something differently? And I think, you know, from, from talking to a lot of people, a lot of people are like that. And when you're high, quite high functioning, and when you do a, a reasonably, you know, pressurised job, um, where there are a lot of eyes on you you do question your decisions. And I think part of that is about evaluating stuff and going back over it and thinking things through and being quite self-evaluative and self-critical. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I have methods of working through that and, and part of that is is really, uh, I suppose, oh, what I try and do is sort of forward think and think, right, okay, how would I feel if I did that and this happened? Uh, not, not catastrophizing things always, but thinking, right, that's the worst case scenario. Likely scenario is this. What sort of percentage likely scenario is that? Yeah, it's probably about that. Okay, right, let's go for it, let's do it. But, you know, using people around you as well to, as sounding boards is important, whether that's family stuff or whether it's work stuff or whether it's, you know, leisure time stuff. Um, you've got to use people around you. You've got, to, you've got to be able to lean on people. And thankfully, I've got brilliant friends, brilliant pals and wonderful family and, um, and cracking colleagues at work. So I'm really, really lucky you think you were when you first started to realise about these feelings of imposter syndrome or, or overthinking anxiety? Uh, and when did you realise that they were not just physical, but in your mind? Um, I think really over the course of my career, and I think if you asked a lot of teachers, I think there'd be a, a lot of similar sort of things. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, again, over egg it. This is certainly not something that cripples me on a daily basis and it means I can't go about my business. And, I, I, you know, I, my heart goes out to people who are struggling with with things that are really, really, really debilitating. Um, but I think over the course of my career, when I've had to make sort of almost bigger and bigger and bigger decisions, that's grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. And um, the, the sort of the potential impact of those or the effect of those or the, 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 the reach that those decisions can have is obviously broader the more scope you've got and the more, um, the more responsibility you've got. So I think the, the more time that has gone on and the more responsibility I've had in my role, then uh, you, you drop you drop a small stone in a big pool and you can see the ripples for further, can't you? Actually, you drop a small stone in a, in a tiny puddle and it's done in a, you know, in a minute and um, so it's done in a, you know, even a second. And it, it, it's that sort of effect, that that's the analogy, that there's more of an impact now, so I think about things more. And I think actually it's, you know, I, I am happy that I do because I think it's, it's something that probably is, it, it means that decisions I make are more evidence-based and informed than they would have been if they're just knee-jerk. Because I, I, I would hate to be that that guy who just makes a, makes a decision in any aspect of my life just on a whim. Um, and of course, there are times, you know, should we go to this bar? Yeah, let's do it. Let's try it out. And it ends up being ropey and you can get out in 20 minutes. It, unless it's a really ropey bar and you can't get out in 20 minutes. Um, obviously not at the moment. Uh, but you know, the vast majority of the time, it, these are things that... that, that quality or that that sort of block i've got in my mind does positively inform decisions that are made mm. and what tools or methods do you use in your life to to help you with that those those processes and and and, and thoughts and which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones have you found that haven't 
Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing I like to think is visualise almost a pie chart now. And I sort of think, well, right, if I did this, this is the decisions that, that I make. Not, not every decision that I make. Of course, you know, some things you just do. But if these are big decisions or it's a change or it's something that's going to add impact on people, it's going to affect the way that people go about their jobs or the way that people, people go about their lives. So it's going to have an impact on um, the experience that, that kids at work get or, or whatever it may be. Or in my own kids, of course, my own family. Then it, it, it's something that I try and mentally sort of think about a pie chart. I'm right, if I did this, what's the, what do I reckon, based on the evidence that's available to me, that what's the chance that the X, Y or Z would happen? Um, and that, that does help me to put it, you know, visualise it a little bit. What have I used that hasn't worked? Um, just sort of sitting there and not responding and not really... And, and just sitting on the problem and not really thinking about it and trying to put it to one side, which I've never really done. Um, but people sometimes say quite glibly, oh, just forget about it. And that's not really a thing that I think works. You can't forget about it. If you care about something, you want to get it right. And just as a final question, Matt, and this has been an absolutely amazing pod and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, toxic masculinity is something which we certainly try and break down a lot on this pod. Um, we also put out the idea of positive masculinity as well. Now, I guess when people think about toxic masculinity and they say, and someone asked you, think of two images you'd associate with it, you, do, you sometimes either think of a group of teenage boys all walking around in a group out on the town or you think of maybe a group of football fans uh, on a pub, on public transport, causing a bit of antisocial behaviour. We, I think I know from personal experience that if toxic masculinity is left unchecked in schools, it can have a really dangerous impact on not just how boys behave with each other, but also how they treat and interact with girls in their year group if they're in a in a mixed uh, school. First of all, what what does toxic masculinity mean to you? And second, how do you make sure that toxic masculinity is not something which can be associated with Thornhill? I think, I mean, what I see, to answer your question a little bit more broadly to start with, I think what, you know, the stereotypical view of uh, particular groups is that they will do this and they'll operate in this way and this is the case. Now, you mentioned teenage boys, for example. Now, what inspires me more than anything at school um, and in my work is that what I tend to see is that actually a lot, the vast, vast, vast majority of, of young, young people book the trend or book the uh, the sort of mainstream impression of what that is. Now, people, I find in life, they will speak as they're spoken to. And I had a, an, an interesting exchange with a, with a group of chaps outside the supermarket quite recently. Well, the, the lady in the supermarket who was sort of on the checkout was screaming at these kids to go away um, because it was it was sort of like 8 o'clock at night on a Friday or something like that. And um, she wanted them to move on, and they were they were they were not doing anything too wrong. They were just been a, a little bit daft. So, but she was screaming at them, and they just saw an opportunity to to almost not wind her up, but just to give a bit back. And it was almost like pouring oil on the flames. And there's a group of lads. Uh, and when I left, I went out and I had a chat with them. And just said, lads, how are we doing? We all right? And I had a conversation with them. And within sort of a minute, they'd moved on because I'd spoke to them and said, look, do you mind? Because there's like older people in there, and um, you know that could be your grandma and all that sort of stuff. And they moved on and they were absolutely right as rain and they were fine. Um, I, I think sometimes people will fit the stereotype that that they're almost forced into. But if people give them another opportunity to be something else, then that's that's something that, um, you know, they would equally grow into. I think, you know, in terms of toxic masculinity, um, 
we don't have a place for it because we have two rules and those rules are be nice and work hard. And part of being nice, I always say 95% of being nice is letting everybody else live in the way that they should be allowed to live and exist. And that means in classrooms, letting them work. It means around the school, letting them go around in a way that's free and they can express themselves and be themselves and be happy. Um, and, you know, if we need to hold students to account across that, and, you know, kids sometimes do need telling costs they do. Kids make mistakes, just like adults make mistakes. And it's about part of our job is not being overly punitive every time. It's about, yes, having sanctions and consequences, but a lot of it is about actually, right, why is that not right? Would you want me doing that? If I said that to you, would you would you be happy about that? And the answer is actually no. And then it's about that education. It's about knowing that, right, you've made a mistake, but that doesn't make you a dreadful person forever and ever and ever. It's something that we, we deal with, we solve, we fix. You know, we, we get, if there's a two, two students, for example, it's happened between, over time, we'll look at, making sure that both have got an opportunity to talk to each other and often what you find is is that these op these situations will often have quite the opposite impact long term than, than they do in the short term in that particular incident and um often people will find their allies in it's something that they've been some of they've been daft to before obviously you know there are there are things that would happen in some schools that you wouldn't be able to get back from um but the vast majority of sort of low level issues that you can pick up on um, it's about making sure that they don't they make those mistakes again and, and having systems and procedures and people who can who can make sure that that is educational, yes, but they also know that that's not acceptable. You've got those processes in place to help those young kids and, 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 and help them realise that mistakes don't do... Mistakes don't, shouldn't define our lives, they should just help shape it into the people that we are today. I've just got one more question uh, and then I will, I will finish up. Uh, so... What more do you think needs to be done so we can help everyone, but especially men, uh, you know, teenage boys, and also male teachers get to a stage where they can talk about their mental health straight away and not feel like it's so stigmatised? If you'd been asking me this 10 years ago, or five years ago even, uh, there'd have been a list as long as my arm. I think now it's about maintaining momentum. It's about making sure that there are still fantastic platforms, there are still um, really good people who are happy to talk about these things and are happy to come out and um, say, yep, this happened to me, this is how I'm feeling, this is what I'm going through. Um, and, and, and keeping that momentum going. There's some amazing initiatives, you know, things like Andy's Man Club, which is just absolutely fantastic and, 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 and genuinely saved lives. Um, and it's about keeping those things going up and down the country and making sure that people have got places they can go and talk to and or people they can go and talk to and places they can go and talk and, um, and getting those positive messages out that it's all right not to be okay. Uh, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're an um, adult, whether you're a child, it doesn't make a blind bit of difference. Everybody's going to struggle at some times. Everybody's going to have the, the ups, everybody's going to have the downs. And it's about making sure that people are given the opportunity to, to talk those through and to, to support them and help them and seeing it very much as... Um, sorry, I'll start that bit again. WhatsApp's just buzzed. I'm very much seeing mental health as health. You know, it's not just something that isn't affecting you. Of course it affects you. Absolutely, it does affect you. It, it affects how you behave, how you interact, how you feel. Um, and it can have an impact, of course, on, on your physical health as well, can't you? So I think it's about maintaining momentum that's definitely there. Um, carrying on breaking down those stigmas around men shouldn't cry and all that nonsense. Um, and just being really positive about the fact that it is something that's that's celebrated so, so, um, so loudly these days. <laughs> Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Matt, 
Thank you so much for being my special guest, for your openness, for your honesty, and for sharing your insights with the listeners. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's strange.